Episode 57, 15th of October, 2012, Cassini Huygens Mission. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org Launched 15 years ago today, the Cassini-Huygens mission has been one of the outstanding successes of solar system exploration and a model of NASA-ESA collaboration. In episode 14, Professor John Zarnecki spoke about the science conducted from the surface of Titan by the Huygens lander in January 2005. The European Space Agency's Huygens probe had hitched a lift to Saturn aboard the Cassini orbiter. Six years after its arrival at Saturn, Cassini is still making spectacular discoveries about Saturn, its majestic rings and its many intriguing moons. In this episode, Professor Carl Murray from Queen Mary University, London, talks about some of those discoveries and how the mission will eventually come to an end. Professor Carl Murray, you're a familiar face, sky at night, wonders of the solar system, and now you've hit the big time on AstroTalk UK. Just remind us what the main objectives were for Cassini. Cassini Huygens, to give it its full name, was the, the plan to go to Saturn. So you look at the Saturn system and you've got obviously a gas giant, mm-hmm. a massive ring system, unlike anything else in the solar system, mm-hmm. a whole retinue of satellites, and one very large satellite, which is Titan, mm-hmm. which is independently interesting because it has an atmosphere thought to be similar to the atmosphere of the Earth mm-hmm. before life began, because the main component, you're, you're seeing nitrogen, but you're also seeing methane. So it's an intriguing system, which we had two brief views by, by Voyager, and uh, it was important to go back and answer some of these scientific questions. On Titan, the Huygens probe, what did that discover? The essential thing was, for me, give us the first view of the surface, because there's this big debate. One, there was a paper in the, I guess, the 1980s that suggested that Titan had a global ocean that was several hundred kilometres deep, and not an ocean of water, but an ocean of possibly liquid ethane or methane. And, mm. which is exciting yeah. <laughs> but then others suggested no it couldn't be or it had to be maybe had, maybe had some lakes so your, the actual first images were what interested me because I'm not a Titan expert um, but since then it's, it's been fascinating because the idea is that the, the Huygens results complement the Cassini results so we're seeing, mm. we're seeing an in-situ observation from the surface of Titan you realise that Huygens probably landed in a dried-up lake bed, because we know Titan has seasons. 
But as it descended, the images showed as it came through the atmosphere showed a, a landscape that looked very familiar. It looked like the Earth's landscape. You could see what looked like rivers, a, a coastline, and you go all this way and you find something so familiar. It, just like there's a sort of water cycle on, on Earth, you know, the sun shines, mm. causes evaporation, the yeah. clouds form, the clouds give like, rain because of the change in pressure and so on, and um, then that goes, flows down through rivers into lakes and sea, and then that evaporates in the whole cycle. But it seems like the same thing may be going on at Titan, and that you get um, methane rain, mm. you get... Um, oceans, well, if not oceans, then certainly lakes, we're pretty sure they exist now. And, you know, that description of the landscape of Titan, basically uh, the lander Huygens didn't last very long, it was one of the most spectacular, memorable images, and it just brought the whole idea of space exploration live for, for me. And the first thing to touch the surface was, was a, a probe that was made in the UK. Yeah. The surface science package. How long has Cassini been in orbit around Saturn now? It entered orbit on the 1st of July 2004. Mm. So we're eight years into the mission. We've had a nominal mission which lasted four years. Then mm. we had the Equinox mission which lasted another two years. And mm. now we're almost two years this year into what's called the Solstice mission. Right. And the idea of the Equinox and Solstice means we're actually seeing the Saturn system at different times with respect to the sun elevation. So, so when the North and South Pole get the sun, just like we have yeah, in so we've, we've seen the, the ring plane crossing, mm-hmm. like so the sun's gone from shining below the ring plane to shining above oh, that yeah. took place in oh, August 2009. But now, so that would be the equinox. So mm-hmm. now we're going towards the, hopefully towards the solstice. Anybody who's seen Saturn through a telescope, I mean with their own eyes rather than images of it, will probably be attracted to astronomy in a very powerful way. It's just an amazingly beautiful object to look at. Cassini's been in Saturn orbit for so many years now. Over that time, what have we learned since, as opposed to what we knew about the rings before Cassini got there? Um, apart from, apart from the, the, the Titan results, I think it's fair to say one of the major discoveries is of this moon Enceladus, mm. which is an icy moon which Voyager had sort of identified as something interesting because its, its surface appeared to have different ages because there were definitely smooth areas which, with no sign of cratering, which tells you because every place in the solar system gets bombarded. When you don't see craters, you know you're looking at a new surface or relatively new surface. And yeah. people kind of didn't dare hope, but they thought there was a possibility that maybe something interesting was going on in Enceladus. Of course, what Cassini has found, which was really was unexpected, is an active moon that's spewing out ice particles at its south polar regions. And, and there's almost certainly a source of liquid water underneath its surface. So this was one of the amazing discoveries. I remember the press release that one of the moons of Saturn, Enceladus, is ejecting icy particles, or is it water vapour? These, these are, well, it is ice particles. particles um, so-called. But essentially if it came out at these kind of speeds mm-hmm. that we think of as a sort of vapour, then it would almost instantaneously 
turned turn to ice. And we kind of knew that Enceladus was embedded in a very diffuse ring called the E-ring. We knew it was primarily composed of micron-sized particles of ice. We knew that Enceladus appeared to be coated with a sort of coating, a fresh coating. Mm. And all the clues were there. We also knew there was this, this beautiful dynamical relationship between Enceladus and Ione, and that um, Enceladus should be tightly heated. But mm. nobody expected there was the consequence of that to be so dramatic. But a source of liquid water and a place where you get 1% of the sunlight that the Earth receives mm-hmm. is, is remarkable. Are there any uh, theories about the mechanism that drives this process? It's fair to say it's still not decided. We know that the essential mechanism is tidal heating, but when you put in the numbers, it suggests, from, from what we know or can guess, about the properties of, of, the, of the moon. The, the numbers just don't work. Maybe some of the numbers were, or guesses are wrong. Maybe some people suggest there's radiogenic heating in, mm-hmm. the, in the interior. But obviously the more, more we stay in orbit around Saturn, the more we observe it, you know, the more data we can take, the better we have a chance of explaining it. So this tidal heating is the heating of the material of Enceladus um, by virtue of the large gravitational attraction from Saturn. It sounds like a very dynamic process, so this water being ejected, presumably, it's, although it's at high speed, it's not an escape velocity speed, so it comes back to Enceladus eventually? Well, yes, it's got an escape velocity, well, it has also an escape velocity to get, a, get oh. past Enceladus. Right. Um, not, not all of it escapes, some of it come, comes back down, and right. you can actually see near these, these so-called tiger strike regions in the South Pole, hmm. we know that they're, they're warmer than the surrounding areas, and we also can literally see sort of fresh, what looks like fresh snow, or <laughs> material that's come out of these jets, more, more likely. The actual observations will hopefully help us define what's going on here. But, but yes, it does escape and forms a, 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 the material forms a ring, the E-ring, which actually stretches, I think, from the orbit of Mimas right beyond the orbit of, of Dione. Because, because as well as the gravitational effect, the non-gravitational forces, because the particles get charged, mm-hmm. and then the magnetic field comes into play, and then all sorts of kind of weird dynamics take place. So. It's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating system. Yeah. And, and because it's dynamic, surely there's a finite amount of water within Enceladus. Would it then indicate that this is a relatively, on a geological timescale, recent phenomena? I don't know the, the numbers for, yeah. for that, but suffice it to say that since we got there and saw that it's active, it's remained active every time mm-hmm. we passed it. You know, we've even, the instruments on Cassini have actually sampled the material. We've actually flown through the jets. Right. You know, that's, that's how confident we are that we know it's, it's <laughs> kind of big there to the spacecraft. Right. And so we've actually sampled it. So, for example, some of the critics of the, the saying, who, who disbelieved that there was a source of liquid water, saying, well, that would imply um, it should be salty because if it has contact with, with, with rock, as in the Earth's case, mm-hmm. you know, the, the salt would be d- dissolved and would be in the, in, in the water. And then guess what? Cassini, in the experiments, actually detects sodium. Right. So yes, if you could actually taste this, it would have a salty taste. So, you know, there's more and more evidence that that really is the case. It's a source of liquid water. One of the things that I know you've been involved with is the, the discovery of the F-ring and the two shepherding moons. Now, conceptually, can you just help understand that? Why are moons required 
for a ring to exist? Well, I, I am not the discoverer of the everything or, or of this shepherding moments. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the problem when, when narrow rings were discovered, and mm-hmm. uh, actually they were first discovered in Uranus by, by occultation, by stellar occultation, mm-hmm. the dynamical problem is that narrow rings should spread. So there's two mechanisms. The first is collisions, mm-hmm. and that's most effective when you've got large particles. right? The second is... Um, that's a weird effect called the pointing Robertson light drag. So where the incident um, radiation is got a wavelength comparable to the size of the particle. So clearly it's most important for small particles, so micron size, smaller. Um, so these are opposing effects. And so even if you choose kind of a happy medium of particle size, you still it still means the rings would spread. Right. And on varying time scales depending on where you are and how much sunlight there is and particle size and so on. Mm-hmm. So we knew that dynamically, unless you're looking at a special time and the ring's very young, narrow rings should spread unless they're constrained. So the, 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 the task then was to find a mechanism to constrain them. And this was found at the, the F-ring by these moons, Prometheus and Pandora. Well, that was the, 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 the assumption. We now kind of say the so-called shepherding satellite because... We're not convinced that the mechanism works here. By that mean, you mean if these Pandora and Prometheus weren't there, the rings would collapse? The ring, the ring, the F-ring would spread because of the, the yeah. competing effects of mm. collisions and PR drag. So what happens is the moons, in theory, exert torque. So it is like a sort of shepherd. There's a, there's a sort of stray sheep. The actual gravitational effect is to sort of funnel the particles kind of back into the ring. Mm-hmm. There's actually an exchange of angular momentum as well, and the idea is that a balance has arisen between the tendency for the ring to spread and the ability of the moons to kind of keep it in, in check. Although it's the dynamics of uh, the rings in Saturn, is anything there that's been observed that we can apply to how, for example, the asteroid belt, which is essentially a, a very large ring around the sun. Is that, are, there, are there any physics that you can transport to? Probably not the asteroid belt, simply because the differing origins. The, the best theory for the asteroid belt is uh, an object, the remnants of an object that failed to form, probably because once Jupiter formed, it kind right. of stirred things up, and certainly in the early history of the solar system there were some massive events taking place. The asteroid belt is probably a fraction of its original mass. So it is that but, way around. But there is, there is a certain, there's applications, much, mm-hmm. much broader applications than that, and that's, right. that's the fact that at Saturn's rings you're looking at an astrophysical disk, and we believe the planets themselves formed out of disks of material around stars. Mm-hmm. So we can actually I can point to features in Saturn's rings that have um, dynamical equivalents in sort of simulations that people do in planetary formation. Right. And so we now know that resonance is important in, um, in, in planetary formation scenarios as protoplanets form out of a disk of material. Mm-hmm. Um, and that certainly is important in sculpting Saturn's rings, particularly the A ring. We also are beginning to detect the objects in the rings that appear to be migrating. And we certainly know that the planets, after they formed, migrated some in, like Jupiter, and some out, like Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Mm-hmm. So all of these, and you know, to, to realizing that we've observed astrophysical disks around lots of stars, basically in the infrared, but um, and of course now we've got hundreds of exoplanets observed. Mm-hmm. But 
to um, to have a astrophysical disk on our doorstep that we can go to and observe. And okay, the, the, the conditions are different than they were the early, early solar system because our, our disk isn't particularly hot in the sense the particles are all pretty, pretty well behaved. They're all near circular orbits going around Saturn at quite a speed, but um, they're not... Self-gravity is important, but, but collisions for the most part aren't. Whereas in the early solar system, especially after some of the planets started to form, the disk got really hot in the sense that dynamically hot, that objects started colliding with each other and so on. Right. But, the, but the basic physics is the same. The, the, the laws uh-huh. don't change. It's just trying to understand how they operate in each situation. Is it um, very clear now uh, on uh, the origins of the disks around Saturn? Are they the remnants of a, a moon that was, or is, are the rings material that never made it into I'm afraid the jury's still out because that's one of the things Cassini was designed to answer. And it's difficult. One of the things we've realised, simply because we've understood better how the rings are clumping, Mm -hmm. was that we've underestimated the mass of the rings in the past. So at least by a factor of two. It isn't necessarily just one event. You could have had an object passing close to Saturn, like a giant comet, mm-hmm. uh, which got broken up just like we saw with Shoemaker Levy 9, but a much bigger object. So it had to have, it's not just like Halley type, much bigger, mm-hmm. several hundred kilometres to get all the mass. One of the most recent theories comes from sort of this combination of simulations and, and a better understanding. It says that perhaps there were more than one Titan-sized object in the early Saturn system. Remember, you've got to realise the system we see now may bear no relation to the system that existed yeah. after Saturn and its moons formed. Mm. So if if there was a, another Titan, and which had a kind of rocky core, an icy mantle, mm. the simulations would show that if this came in under the tide effects of tides because it was inside the synchronous orbit, it would be broken up in such a way that the, the mantle would get stripped and form the ring system uh-huh. and the core would disappear into the, into the planet. Now, that is brilliant because at a stroke, you get the ring system of the right mass, Nine. but also you get a very pure ice ring system. And that's one of the things we know from Cassini. Right. This is more than 90%, think maybe 95% pure water ice with minor contaminants. It's amazing. Cassini's been at Saturn now since, as you say, 2004. It's been amazingly successful. What's left? How much more time does Cassini have? Well, the current plan is to end the mission in 2017. Essentially, we run out of fuel to make the course corrections that are necessary to change the orbit and so on. Mm -hmm. But it's going to go out with, with, with a quite spectacular finish. The idea is we use Titan's gravity to change the, the orbit. So um, we keep going back to Titan and then we make sort of minor course corrections with the, the engines and so on. Um, so what's going to happen in late 2016 is they're going to change the orbit so it comes, crosses the ring plane just outside the orbit of the F-ring. So it'll be a few thousand kilometres outside so we'll get spectacular views of the F-ring. And then in kind of one leap in... Um, I think it's the spring of 2017, it's going to jump, that crossing point is going to jump from outside the F-ring to inside the D-ring, which is the ring that lies just above the cloud tops of Saturn. It's a very diffuse ring, mm-hmm. so it's probably not going to be a hazard to the spacecraft, but then the mission's almost over, so right. you kind of can take a bit of a gamble at that stage. 
and then we have these incredible orbs they call them proximal I don't think you can get much more proximal than when you're that close to the, yeah. the atmosphere yeah. and then uh, those will be really important because we can actually tr- by tracking the spacecraft mm. we can get um, the first of all the, the, the idea of the potential of a planet where the mass is concentrated basically putting constraints on the interior of the planet we get the extra like not just the dipole moment the quadrupole moment and others of the magnetic field which are really close otherwise it's all going to get smoothed out and with the proximal and the uh, the earthling orbits we get the mass of the ring system as well which is again one of these unknown quantities by the tracking and then when that's finished in September 2017 the plan is to put the spacecraft into the planet in one final manoeuvre now, quite apart from the exciting science you can do during this special manoeuvre near the end, is it not possible just to leave it in a very long, uh, distant orbit so it just stays there? Well, you say it just stays there, but um, what we now know is that nothing kind of just stays there because <laughs> uh-huh. it only stays there in the sense of it's just it around Saturn, but so many other gravitational perturbations. Right. And you cannot guarantee that that object is not going to collide with Titan or Enceladus. So given that there's plutonium on board in a a kind of safe ceramic form, because Mm -hmm. you cannot power a spacecraft at that distance from the sun without it, do you really want to to take the the risk of some sort of possibility that life could form or maybe already exists in these places and we just contaminated them? I mean, the centre of the planet is not going to make a difference because it's a really harsh environment to put it back. Um, but one of these kind of pristine moons, I mean, I don't think we have the, the, the right to do that, really. So. Yeah. So on the one hand, you've got to protect the pristineness of some of these yeah. moons, and on the other hand, make the best choice after the worst, which is be sure, put it somewhere that's safe that's right. uh, for, for future. Professor Carl Murray, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.